Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. So happy that you're here with us today. We've got a great guest, business coach, speaker, host of the top-rated The Influencer Podcast, and author of the brand new book, Get What You Want, How to Go From Unseen to Unstoppable. Today, our guest shares her personal story of hiding over $30,000 of credit card debt from her husband and how his discovery led her down a new path of unlocking her toxic origin story around money and success. I'm talking about Julie Solomon, and she gets real with us today on the Typology Podcast, folks. She talks about her relationship with her husband and how she discovered the three tools to freedom, awareness, acceptance, and action. Hey, before I turn it over to the hosts, remember Ian's got a brand new book, The Story of You, and a brand new companion workbook to The Story of You, The Story of You Workbook. All those are available everywhere fine books are sold. Hey, we're super happy you're here. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner, and now... Here is the host of our show, Ian Cross. Julie Solomon, Enneagram 3 with a two-wing, author of the wonderful new book, Get What You Want, How to Go from Unseen to Unstoppable on HarperCollins Imprint. Welcome to Typology. Thank you for having me. We are delighted that you're here. So glad to have you in our cave. Woohoo! No, I love your cave with the best wallpaper ever. Thank you. <laughs> and next week... Furniture. Furniture's coming. Furniture's coming. We are so excited that we're actually going to have window treatments in the cave. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be really a treat. Um, Enneagram 3, yes. this brand new book. I love it when Enneagram 3s come in with titles like Get What You Want, How to Go from Unseen to Unstoppable. You will never see an Enneagram 4 write a book with that title. No. Okay. It would be more like, let's, let's play with that. Um, uh, struggle with what you want <laughs> how to go from unseen to more unseen <laughs> i know i feel like the perfect there's a book called the unbearable lightness of being mm -hmm. i'm like that sums up a four. Oh, to like a t now what makes you an authority on fours well my husband is a four oh. so it's kind of like i get i get a daily preview of all of that and you talk about your marriage in the book. I do, yeah. And you talk about some crisis moments and you talk about ways that you've learned about each other. Before we dip into that, which we are going to do, I want to know what your experience of being a three is like. Mm. Like, how did you figure that out? And like... Yeah. So, I mean, well, I took a test and that's how I figured it out. But it, it you know, when I was reading about threes, it, you know, it's like... You're just, you're nodding your head. Yes, 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 yes. That's so me. That's so me. And um, I know just from what I do know about Enneagram is that I think we're, we're kind of all of them to a degree, but you, you most identify with that. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, achievement and that desire to achieve and that desire to be seen as successful is something that has always, I, I don't remember a time in my life where that wasn't a part of me. I remember being a little girl was probably four years old and I was in a pageant, which is, I know, shocking for an Enneagram 3 to be in a pageant in the first place. But they, the MC was asking all the, you know, the little girls, what do you want to be when you get older? And there would be one that would come up and she would say, I want to be a nurse. And then the other one, I want to be a teacher. And I walked out on stage and I snatched the mic from him and I looked out to the crowd and I said, I want to be a rock star. <laughs> 
And just the whole place in my little, you know, Warren County, Tennessee, where I was born, just erupted. And it was, I remember that feeling of like, oh, like this is, this is exciting. This feels good. And so if I could just do more of that, then I get more of the claps and more of the applause. Mm. You know, it's interesting when you were talking just earlier, just right at the top end, it looks as you as you were describing when I asked about threes, as though being a three at some level in your life has been a burden. I think it can be. I think it can be a gift. And then I think that it can also be a, you know, a defect, just mm. as with, with anything. Um, my relentlessness can serve me very well. Um, my ability to not give up has has lended to a lot of achievement and a lot of success and a lot of um, impact and my ability to you know connect with people and to you know influence their lives in positive ways those are all gifts but then it can also be a burden in the sense of it's never enough because I'm never enough Mm -hmm. and I can never do enough or be enough to become enough and so then it's just this constant need and desire to find worthiness externally, which I share a lot in the book, how I've really worked on myself for years to, to find that worthiness from, from within and getting to the root of why did I feel that way to begin with, which has a lot to do with my childhood and the dynamics in my home at the time and what was going on and my need and desire to want to fix and want to shape and want to manage with the hopes that someone would love me in return. And I think that from my understanding of Enneagram 3, that is very identifiable. And I think a lot of threes can relate to that. Hmm. People don't write books out of the, you know, they don't just pull a book title out of the air and say, I'm going to write a book, right? I mean, there's usually some, what we would call inciting event, some moment that really shook them, moved them, that led to the actual writing of a book. What was it for you? What what was the crisis or the moment of revelation that led you to write this book? Um, for me, I think the, the moment that I no longer had my head in the sand so I could be aware of what a crisis was, um, was probably, I was six, seven years ago at this time. And I got a call from my husband, and he said, hey, hon. And he said it all chipper-like in his acting voice. Hey, hon. That's right, because your husband's an actor. He's an actor. Yes. And he said, when were you going to tell me about the credit card? And in that moment, you, my throat just fell to my stomach. And I immediately started thinking, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? How do I fix this? Because that's where I always go. The credit card. What happened with the, the credit, credit card. card? So there was a credit card that I had over a span of about two and a half years amassed over $30,000 of debt on. And I kept that from my husband. And the reason why I kept that from my husband, which I didn't even realize it at the time because of my own delusion and justification and rationalization of things is that I was so afraid to be honest about money and my relationship with money and my understanding of money because I grew up with not a lot of money. And when I was able to really start to ask myself that question, I was able to start to pull back these layers as to my my issues around money and feeling worthy of abundance and feeling worthy of being able to not only make money, but to not be so quick to spend it faster than I could make it. And 
that scarcity mindset is just how I survived growing up. I grew up in an alcoholic home with not a lot of money. My dad literally wore a blue collar to work every day. Both of my parents did not go to college. And so it was this constant lack mindset of there's never enough. If we just had enough money to pay the bills, we're doing good. You know, um, if dad, you know, he would say, hey, I'm going to go out to get milk and wouldn't come home for three days. Did he gamble it all away? We don't know. Hopefully he didn't. So we're going to have the, you know, money to pay the bills. So there was this constant fear of lack, not having enough, not being enough. And so I then kind of thought, well, maybe if I can be perfect and great and take care of everybody and make sure that everyone's needs are met, then it will fix the problem. And so what kind of mask do I need to put on? What kind of part do I need to play in order to avoid the reality of this situation? And so fast forward to 30 plus years later, I was sitting at a kitchen table that looks similar to this, now having to face these decades of these masks that I had been putting on, which had kept me from really understanding who I was mm. up until that point. Hmm. So who was behind all the masks? Behind all the mask, I think, was a very, you know, it was a little girl who wanted to be seen and loved just the way that she was, but she didn't know how to shine. She didn't know how to crack open. She didn't know how to allow herself to be seen. Um, and so she just thought that she could hide, but then she expected to be seen in the process mm. of that. And what were you spending money on? I'm going to go deep here. Yeah. I'm going in. Well, and what were we spending of, money on? This was part of my rationalization. Because I would say to myself, well, it's not like I'm going down to Rodeo Drive to buy Hermes bags. Like, I'm buying a shirt from Zara. I'm going and having, you know, salad at lunch with my friends. I'm going and buying, you know, bubbly water from Whole Foods that's $9. Like, so I would justify and rationalize the spending by saying, well... It's not like I'm buying a car and not telling him. It's not like this and not telling him. But those little things would then add up to this mound of debt. And also living in L.A. at the time, I felt that I needed to play that part of this new mom that needed to look the part and act the part and be the part of this kind of L.A. mom, influencer, entertainment society. And doing that costs a lot of money. Over $30,000, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> So your husband is an actor, but he's, mm -hmm. we, we were talking before we started rolling, and I'm assuming this is okay to talk about. He's in recovery. Yes. That's is. a public yes, piece very, of information. Yes. And um, tell me about the dynamics of that. Yeah. So my husband has been, um, you know, going through his own discovery for probably the last 25 years has been in, you know, he's, he's done all the, all the recoveries. I remember we were in a therapy session once and the therapist just said, you know, John, just get into, I don't care what step, you know, S-A-N-A, like you qualify for all of them. So just <laughs> pick one. And Julie, you really need to get into Al-Anon. Mm. And I kept saying, but I'm not the one with the problem, which is usually the first thing that, right. you know, most Al-Anon say. I'm not the one with the problem. He's the one with the problem or she's the one with the problem. And it wasn't the first time that I had had kind of a therapist tell me that. When I had been younger, I had gone to some therapy sessions and someone had recommended Al-Anon or another recovery program called ACA that maybe I could mm -hmm. be open to checking out. But the dynamics of that was that we, when we came together, my husband had had more experience in recovery and therapy than I had. But we got to this dynamic. It was a couple years after the credit card and my husband set me down and said, 
it was during the Me Too movement, and he said, I just remembered for the first time that I was sexually assaulted when I was younger. Mm. And I think that this is why I have a lot of the problems that I do. And now I'm going to go and get help. And it was in that moment that I started thinking, okay, so normally what Julie would do is try to help him help himself, which then just robs him the dignity (laughs) of having his own experience. But I didn't know what that meant at the time. And so I just started thinking, well, what could I do? And then it was maybe I could go work on myself and see what could happen. And so I think that both of us being able to finally find a support and for us a recovery group and program that works for for each of us individually has really it's it saved our marriage it saved both of our lives and it allows us to have this really beautiful dynamic between us two that is compassionate and loving and understanding and I can finally get out of the way, which was a huge part of my, my part to play in a lot of things for a really long time. I have really good ideas, Ian, about how everyone else should live their life. And if they would just listen to me, <laughs> not only would their life be better, but the entire world would be a better place. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I just kept waiting for the world to catch up with me. And when I finally realized that, oh, wow, Julie Solomon does not have the answer to all the world's problems, what a relief. Now maybe I can go and focus on myself a little bit and see what happens. Hmm. So we need to probably hit pause so you can go over to the house and sit with my wife, who is an Al-Anon ninja. I saw the book in there. I didn't want it, but I was like, who's Al-Anon works Book is that? She yeah. is Alnon Ninja. I'm in recovery, so we. This is a big part of our lives is yeah. is using, talking in the vernacular of you know recovery and uh, step work and doing doing the whole thing. So you guys would have a lot to to share in common, and yes. that that would be uh, be wonderful to watch. And uh, you all could compare notes and ruin both my life and your husband's <laughs> by comparing notes. You know, threes and fours together, man. That's tricky. Yeah. What's it like? It can be. So, you know, for me, I, a lot of times, you know, I'll see, I love to be solutions focused. He loves to just really talk about the problem. And there's this problem that won't go away. And did you know that he has a problem? And did you know that no one can help him with that problem? And I'm sitting here with all the answers, but I have learned just through my own process of growth that. A, I don't have all the answers. And mm-hmm. so me stepping back just to kind of let him be in his problem, because a lot of times it's just, he's just wanting a sounding board. But I think the three in me, you know, I, I want to fix it. I want to make it better because it makes me feel important. It mm-hmm. makes me feel powerful. Right. It makes me feel like, you know, I, I have some kind of weight. And I think for him sometimes, and this is just a judgment, so I'll admit, it's, you know, he loves to kind of have that martyr complex. Um, You know, it's his cross to bear, you know? And so I kind of have to just let him have that. But I I would say the, the gifts of having a four in my life is that the way that he sees the world is so unique. And it really is, you know, sometimes I'll joke and I'll just say like, oh, he has what I call special snowflake syndrome. Special snowflake syndrome. I'm already feeling a little hot around the collar, Anthony. I'm feeling a little trapped. But he really is a special snowflake. And the way that he views the world is so magical and, and precious and beautiful and 
sad, but that's okay. You know, I'm someone that it's like, I, I want to beat intimacy to the punch. Like, I don't want to do that grief thing. I don't like it. Why not? Because it's not light and hearted and fun and happy. That sounds sevenish to me, though. Or is it because that is it because that when people have those feelings, it slows these it slows things down. It slows things down, and you know I don't have time to be. I gotta do. Right. You know mm-hmm. I've got stuff. We gotta get this ball rolling. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have time for feelings. Right. And my husband's nothing but all the feelings. Mm. And um, but it allows a good perspective for me to remember that there's a balance and and really where. There's a a creativity of life and of work and of being, the art of just being, that he can reflect back to me in a really beautiful way. Mm. Yeah, you're right, because you are, uh, threes are doers, Mm -hmm. fours are feelers. Mm -hmm. And that can cause some some friction, you know, if it's not negotiated well between the two of you. And um, it sounds like you're, especially, man, when you get an Al-Anon program, it not only just changes your relationship with whoever the addicted person is in your life, uh, in recovery or not, it changes your whole relationship to the dang world. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not in charge. Right. You know? And I heard in a meeting once that they say, you know, drinking to an alcoholic is thinking to an alanonic. Yes. And so yeah. I'm in there to fix, there's a you know, my stinking thinking, right. they'll say. And um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, too. And, and what I would love to know, and you may have a little bit more insight on this, is how recovery and Enneagram kind of mold together. Because some of the things that I'll start, you know, the three in me wants to jump in and do and fix. But the, the recovered three in me knows that it's not my job to do that. And sometimes it can cause friction because my husband kind of likes it when I come in and fix Mm -hmm. and take hold and, you know, and make it all right. And so there can be a little bit of resentment there that happens when he's like, you're not fixing everything for me anymore. I can't be the tormented artist in the corner that everyone fixes things for because you're not fixing things for me. So that's, that's been an interesting dynamic and how, um, and how my, my connection with Enneagram 3 has changed over time. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to not even have the awareness of that. I had no awareness of that. What is it like when you talk through that? Well, I've learned that I just have to really let him talk. And then I'll just say, hmm. Because I, I will want to jump in and fix. Mm-hmm. And just like, let's just hurry up and get this done because we need to go and, and do other things. And right. I can get this done in like 2.5 seconds and you're going to be talking about it for three months. So let me just do it. But if I pause and allow myself to remember that I really don't know what's best and he may not know what's best either, but we can both give that over and then it will be figured out and resolved. But I'll have to bite my tongue. So I'll just say, hmm. I, don't, I can't even say I don't know. Because I'm like, is that true? Maybe I think I know, but really I don't know. So, yeah, a lot of times I'll just say, hmm. That's the, you know, it's, it's actually learning the difference between a detachment and indifference. Yeah. You're not being indifferent. Mm-hmm. His feelings matter. The way he sees the world matters. But to have a detachment is like, you know, <clears throat> I'm not here. Like one of the things I would say is like, 
I'm not here to make you happy. Your happiness is your job. My happiness is my job. Even in a marriage, my job is not to make Annie happy. Right. My job is to, and nor, nor should I expect her to do that for me. Mm-hmm. When we have issues, right, or things are coming up, she listens to me vent, but she doesn't necessarily step in with an answer. Now, because she has a program, she'll just go, uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Right. And it's not indifference. She's just like, here for you. Right. I'm listening. I'm here for you. But she knows that she doesn't have um, the power, the control, the ability to fix me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's where a lot of people hit the wall. Yeah. Especially you know? threes. Because I'm a good fixer. Yes. Yes. And I'm a good doer. Yes, yes, that is for sure the case. All right, so let's talk about the book, right? Um, get what you want. Yes. All right, so we know a little bit about the crisis that maybe helped give birth to this thing, mm-hmm. right? This $30,000 of the credit card debt, which I would love, I would actually love to see the statements <laughs> because I'd like to see great. how great would it be to lay out all the statements of oh, the credit card debt and track, okay, what type did this? Yeah. Right. That, that, would be, that would be a fun episode. Yeah. yeah. If I saw you buying Hermes bags and, you know, doing this and, you know, trying to... Because, you know, you actually said something earlier that is so true about threes. An un, a, a, a three that's not very self-aware, let's say they... Rather than be a mom or a wife, or, they perform it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. instead of do it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I live in L.A. And, okay, what do, who do, what do I have to do and what do I have to look like yeah. in order to be perceived by those around me as being one of the cool kids, if not the coolest kid in L.A.? Yeah. And I even date that back. I, I remember being in second grade and I got a, a doll for Christmas and I took it to school. And there was a girl in my class that said that dolls were for babies and she didn't want to sit by me. And I told myself in that moment that the reason why she didn't want to sit by me was because I had a doll and I threw the doll in the trash can. Mm. Wow. And I remember going home and bawling my eyes out because that was my beloved Christmas gift. But her not liking me felt worse than me, having my, than me not having my beloved doll. Mm-hmm. And I remember ever since I was little, I, all, I desperately needed people to like me. And I, so I would assimilate and I would shape things and I would, you know, I, I would, sometimes I would like people just because they liked me. Like I would automatically like them back just because they liked me without even giving myself a moment to say, do I actually enjoy being around this person? Do I want to be friends with this person? Do I enjoy their company? I would just automatically like them back because they liked me or in the hopes that they would like me back. And so having to perform or, or put on that face to get people to like me kept modeling. I mean, you know, when I moved to LA, even early, an early start in my career, I would always feel like I was, you know, this sense of belonging and not belonging and being on the outside looking in and wanting so badly to be a part of the cool kids club and be invited in and being accepted. And, and that was, you know, a big part of me really kind of understanding my personality and how I would tick. Hmm. Can I say something? I, it, so it's like, it strikes me, it makes, it sounds normal that you were reflexively doing these things, but talk about, like, it's interesting that she saw this, this doll was so meaningful to her, but she made the choice of giving up that doll for this, for the admiration of a person. Mm-hmm. Like, to be, to be that aware, but to give up something that you love, is that, 
Does that sound kind of like a three? An, a... It does. It also sounds like a little kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know how much I would, I would always, I would say something like that and go, oh, interesting story. I'm not sure I would ascribe too much to it, at that point. To it necessarily. Right. But, it, but what matters is, is that you do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it stands yeah. out to you as emblematic of some kind of an experience as a little person. And, you know, it's like the old expression, you know, it's like it's not what ha- what happened to you doesn't matter nearly as much as what you think happened mm-hmm, to you. Mm-hmm. Right. In the moment, you know. Yeah. So. All right. You've got this book and you've already kind of touched on one of the pieces of it, which is identifying your origin story. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the. The book really, right, is about helping people get rid of old ideas, right? Old habits, old belief systems, old thought patterns, anything that keeps us limited, that keeps us really not feeling our best, that Mm -hmm. keeps us feeling really bad about ourselves, Mm -hmm. shedding all of that. Okay. And so the first, one of the big steps you have to do is identify the origin story. Like what, what is the story here? Tell is that... Yeah. So that's, you know, an origin story. I, I tend to think about comic books, you know, every superhero has this origin story, but I think that every human being has an origin story and it could be just from what are the things that our parents did or did not say or do every day, you know, were we raised in a religion and what was that religion and what was that religion kind of shaping for us and reflecting back to us can be a multitude of different things. And for me, one of the the big origin stories was one of scarcity and limitation. Um, Another one was the more that I was the good girl and the more that I, you know, did what I was supposed to and the more that I achieved and performed and did what I thought my mom and dad wanted me to do, the more love and respect and admiration I would get. So that played a big part for me. And then, you know, another belief system that I had was that, and we've talked a lot about this, that I had all the answers and that I needed to have all the answers in order to be loved and accepted. And so if I could just fix everything for everybody and make everything be okay and do all the work because no one could do it as well as me either. So if I wanted something done, I'm just going to do it myself because I can do it faster and better than anybody else. And so these beliefs, they'll get you far enough until they don't. And, um, until you rack up $30,000 with a credit card debt. (laughs) Exactly. And you hear it and you know, you, you're familiar with recovery groups. So they, a lot of times people will say your greatest strengths are also your greatest defects. And so, I would say that your origin story can serve you well until it doesn't. And so you have to be aware of what it is and really allow yourself to no longer be sticking your head in the sand to really come, come to terms with those hard truths about yourself. All right. So you, you do the work of awareness, right? You mm-hmm. do the work of uh, what I say in my book, the story of you is like, you know, you unearth the origin story of the past, right? You have to exhume it. You have to look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you talk about acceptance. Yeah. What is that about? So acceptance is usually the, it's the hardest thing to do, and it is, it is the most serene part of any, I think, recovery process. And recovering from your origin story is no different than anything else. So becoming aware, that's, you know, just being able to state that, there, there is some kind of dysfunction or challenge or something happening in my life that no longer fits. Now, acceptance is, now what's my part to play in that? 
And that's what I think for me was so hard is that I had to start really being honest, even if it was just 1%. Like, what was my part to play in me getting myself to where I am right now? And so not only can I be, a lot of times people just, okay, I'm aware of what's wrong, now let me go fix it. They want to jump over the acceptance and just go straight into action and, and doing. But the acceptance of what is as it is and nothing more is the key to everything because that's when you can stop demanding that other people, places, things, and ideas change in order for you to be okay. And so for me, it's that it wasn't that my origin story was all of me, but it was a part of the puzzle that no longer fit. And, and it, was, it was causing a dysfunction. For me, it was spending. And so I needed to accept that before I could take any kind of action to figure out what was I going to do about it. So that's really how I see acceptance. And I think that you can't pass go and collect <laughs> the monopoly money until you decide to accept. And acceptance has allowed me to, you know, a great example is, you know, my mom, who's a seven, she's always late. And I used to get really upset about her being late and I would make it all about me and what's wrong and how do I fix this and how can I manipulate it or shape it to, to something else. And then when I just started to accept, hey, she's late, so now what am I going to do about it? I could not meet up with her, but that's not really the goal. The goal is to spend time with her, so I don't want to do that. I could also show up late knowing she's going to be late. I could take a book with me and read while I waited. It gave, it gave myself... It gave me choices that before I never even knew existed. And so that's why I love acceptance so much is that it snaps me into this pristine moment of presence that gives you so much power. And it really is the answer to whatever challenge or problem that you could be facing. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So we go from... Um, you know, this awareness to acceptance, right? And then you talk about action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, action is just simply for me, it's like, okay, now what am I gonna do about it? <laughs> so I'm aware that this problem exists. I accept that it is what it is and nothing more, and I accept my part to play in the matter. So now, what am I, what am I gonna do about it? And, and action is where we can start to you know, bring back in some of the things that have been lost from the dysfunction. So for me, spending my, my worthiness, my self-esteem, my lack of confidence, um, you know, me not being honest with someone that I love more than anything in this world and being able to, to have acceptance and then start to take action from a really healthy place. It restored all of those things that I needed to then step into a way more healthier way of communicating with my husband, a healthier way of understanding myself, and just a, a healthier way of, of approaching life. And, and it set me up to have the business that I now have, which has been incredibly successful. And, you know, I've been able to, you know, do really well and not spend it all before I made it. And, and more than anything, it's allowed me to be honest with where do I need help in financially? You know, do I need to talk to a financial advisor about things? Do I need to bring people in? Do I need to learn new things that maybe I didn't learn before? Mm -hmm. um, and then not beat myself up over it. Just because I need to learn something doesn't mean that I'm a financial toddler. It just means that I don't have a strength in this arena and I can accept that 
and then I can take action on getting the help that I need. So when the person reads this book, ultimately, what is your dream that they're going to come away with? Like, how is their life going to be different as a result of reading it? I really hope that they leave feeling better about themselves in terms of their own self-worth and value. A lot of times when I read self-help books, they'll do a really good job at lining my actions with my goals but they don't necessarily always leave me feeling better about myself. A lot of times I'm left feeling more overwhelmed. I feel more guilty. I'm not doing enough. And so it's my hope with this book and the stories that I share in this book that for, for, for one, women especially will, will stop hiding themselves and expecting to be seen. Because I did that for a very long time. And you, you can't get what you want until you face that. Um, and then stepping into that belief of what's possible, which is self-love and self-worthiness and really knowing that you have everything that you need within you and the rest you can kind of let it go mm. and, and really allow yourself to be seen and heard in a way that inspires others to do the same. Mm. What a wonderful message. I love that message. And I love this thing about awareness, acceptance, and action. I love how it's rooted in some, some, some real recovery yes, wisdom. Yes, I did not invent the three A's. Um, they're very well known in recovery groups and therapy groups. But I will absolutely, I have adopted them into my life, and I'm happy to share how I use them. And hopefully it helps others to do the same. Well, everybody, I'm talking to my new friend, Julie Solomon, about her new book, Get What You Want, How to Go from Unseen to Unstoppable. She is an Enneagram 3 who apparently has done an awful lot of work uh, to um, kind of, what's the word I want to use? Come out from behind the mask. Does that sound right? I think so. And is that a healthy, was it six when threes are their healthiest? Yeah, they go to the high side of six. And sixes are very much people who are pretty comfortable being who they are and not in any way putting a front out, you know. I mean, threes, when they're not doing great, man, they, they're kind of on the make, you know. How do I get ahead? How do I, you know, do what's going to improve my brand? How am I, you know, how do I up my platform? How do I get my game? You know, it's... You know what I mean? Like you get some of that stuff from threes and when they're not doing great. Usually though, they have some kind of a crash of some kind and that sort of, they have a moment of reckoning with the masks. Yeah. It's like, I cannot, I cannot continue. Do this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love a rock bottom. Mm, like, that's a statement. There, that is a statement. I do. Because it, it, it is, where do you go from there? You know, everyone deserves their phoenix rising and... um I had someone tell me once when, when you, when you witness someone having a rock bottom, move out of the way so they can get as aerodynamic as possible on the way down. <laughs> and I just love that. It's just so great. great. And, um, yeah, it's made me a better coach too. Yeah. We, we, um, we have a, a, a good friend of mine and, uh, she was on the show recently. She's a songwriter artist named Mary Gaucher and she's mm. brilliant. And, uh, but Mary, every time Mary opens her mouth, I always say, whenever Mary opens her mouth, God falls out because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just one thing after another. We, and she's been in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction for, I don't know, 30 some odd years. Uh, and she was a bad addict. Um, and, but she has carved a very successful niche in the Americana world. 
And but Mary once said something in a meeting. I just about fell on the floor. She said, well, she's from Louisiana. She goes, well, you'll know you've hit bottom when you've broken your own heart. Mm. And three other songwriters in the room all pulled out their pads and wrote yeah, that down. Exactly. I mean, you know, yeah. when you've broken your own heart, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I think that's that's true. You know, when you finally reach the place where you've broken even your own heart, yeah. not just everybody mm. else's, then you'll know you've yeah. you've probably hit the bottom. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're so glad you were on Typology. Thank you. It's great to be here. I want to remind everybody, Julie Solomon, get what you want, how to go from unseen to unstoppable. It is available now. It just dropped. Did. Did. I hope the book is unstoppable. Thank you. Where do people go to find you? So they can go to juliesolomon.net, which is my website. You can get the book or the Audible wherever books are sold. My, my husband always says, make sure to mention the Audible. He's severely dyslexic, and so he doesn't read anything, but he listens. So for all the Audible listeners out there, I, I had really a good time recording that. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram at Jules, J-U-L-S, Solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. And typology, friends, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Until next time. Mm -hmm.